Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to the holiday edition of ESG Now with me, your jolly, jolly host, Bentley Kaplan. As this drops hot onto your favorite podcast app, I am out on leave. Mike is out on leave. Everyone is out on leave. Because, you know, we believe in a decent recovery time from what has been a weird, frightening, surprising year. As you're listening to this, you might find yourself out of the office, off your commute, and having a little more room for daydreaming than usual. And for a lot of people, the hustle and bustle of work has been replaced by the sizzle and swizzle of the festive season, with any number of celebrations. And in honor of these celebrations, we wanted to turn things upside down. Instead of looking at the world through an ESG lens, we're going to be looking at ESG through a holiday lens, or, you know, something wittier than that. Now, in case you are under any illusions, this is not going to be the spiritual podcast of the season, but we do have a decent dose of ESG to go with your holiday milk and cookies. We'll take a little peek back at 2020, a little squint ahead at 2021, and see if we can squeeze out some holiday hope, some inspiration, something that's going to make you a slightly more pleasant person at family gatherings. We'll start the episode with Saturnalia, the ancient Roman festival of gift-giving and revelry, and what context it can provide for changes that the coronavirus has brought to the restaurant industry. Then, in honor of Kwanzaa, we'll have a look at the first fruits of a future harvest as we highlight the pros and cons of a brave new food innovation. Then, we'll fire up the menorah to cast some light on the renewable energy sector as we grapple with ever-mounting net-zero pledges. And last but not least, we're going to take a hard look at the charming operations of Claws Enterprises to figure out where Santa's biggest carbon risks are lurking. As always, thank you for joining us. Let's do this. Okay, so I wanted to start this show somewhere fun. I wanted to start with Saturnalia, which was an ancient Roman festival held in honor of the god Saturn. Now, the Romans tended to do things pretty big, as you might know, and Saturnalia was no exception, with days of gift-giving and, quote, wild revelry. And even if you're not an ancient Roman or a pagan, some unintended tributes to this festival have been creeping into bars and restaurants around the world as patrons look to unwind and swap out some of the unhappy memories of 2020 with some slightly blurrier ones. And if you run a restaurant or a modern-day speakeasy, you have a hard call to make. Because after seeing lockdowns and economic hardships squeeze out your profits, closing your doors in a second or even third wave of COVID could be the last thing you want to do. And it could be the final straw for your business. So I wanted to talk to SK Kim, out of our sole office, to put all of this in perspective. Because the restaurant industry has been hot on her radar throughout 2020. An industry that has two very different types of players. Um, It's very fragmented. So we have a iconic restaurant companies, as you said, like McDonald's, Domino's, or Starbucks. But the key pillar of the industry is actually the independent owners, as the 70% of the entire restaurant industry is operated by them. But the difficulty is because of the very low operating profit. On average, the profit margin is only around 5%. The restaurants do have a high uh, fixed and variable cost, and the majority of them come from the food that they source and also, um, more importantly, the labor. So we have seen the in the beginning of the pandemic, at least in the U.S., almost half of the restaurants uh, were closed down. And since the restaurant industry is the largest employer in the 
private sector uh, that actually led to the spike in unemployment rate. Right. And to try and roll with the punches, restaurants have really embraced food delivery as an option to keep cash rolling in, despite having to keep customers out. But for all the wonders of food delivery, I don't know, for me it's never been quite the same. Even my favorite dish, from my favorite place, delivered right to my door, where I can enjoy it in my fat pants, isn't quite the same. There's something intangible that's missing. And that intangible difference is something that SK sees as a real positive, and one reason she thinks that the restaurant industry will be bouncing back. I mean, once the vaccine is out, I think people would continue to go out for dinner, for lunch, uh, like networking and socializing with people because, you know, dining out means just more than having food outside. They go out for the experience. Okay, so customers want the experience of eating away from home together, whether it's with colleagues or friends or family. So you take a potential economic bounce back and combine it with the state of the restaurant industry, which is filled with these low-margin independent businesses that have been closing over the course of 2020. And it's not that surprising to hear Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks, say that, quote, we have line of sight to grow faster than the addressable market, which means we're going to be taking back market share. In other words, big companies with big reserves may have been able to wait out the pain to catch the growing market in 2021 and beyond. But there's another side to this coin, not just the humanness of customers wanting the experience of dining, but the experience of the very human workers that make up the backbone of the restaurant industry. I I have to say 2020 was a very special year. The movement that we have seen in the US in particular, Black Lives Matter or where the underrepresented population, they were asking for more of an equitable treatment in the community. And that also applies to, you know, working environment for sure. The Biden administration is going to light up the discussion around minimum wage and also living wage. And that is a key issue for the industry. One key thing that I would like to mention is the regulatory risk called a joint employer ruling used to be in effect under Obama administration, but then um, it got rolled back under Trump. So the joint employer ruling means the big franchise um, owners are also going to be held responsible of the employees that are hired in the franchise stores. There is a chance and also, I would say, regulatory uncertainty around this uh, regulation that actually would make those big franchise chains responsible that includes paying uh, minimum wage and living wage, and um, they would they could also be responsible when you know the franchisee stores um, face litigation by the employees or any subpar treatment of the workers. So even though 2020 was a wild, unpredictable year, its consequences won't end on the 31st of December, no matter how big the Saturnalia celebrations are. And there is something about the excess of Saturnalia and the ultimate demise of ancient Rome that may sound as a warning bell to big restaurant chains hungry to consume market share. Because lingering social tensions, combined with the roll-in of a new administration, could see some regulatory shifts. Shifts that could make 2021 a much trickier one for companies to navigate. And from the wild, unrestrained days of Saturnalia and the demise of ancient Rome, we turn to the reflective and the hopeful in the shape of Kwanzaa, an annual celebration of African-American culture. Now, as you can probably work out, 
I am the furthest thing from the voice of authority on African-American culture. But reputable sources say the name Kwanzaa has roots in the Swahili phrase Matuna ya Kwanzaa, which translates roughly as first fruits of the harvest. And that phrase, first fruits, got me thinking. Because we've spoken about food and food production quite a lot this year. From behemoths like Monsanto, to innovators like Beyond Meat, to COVID tearing through the meat processing industry. But Kwanzaa's forward-looking, hopeful feeling made me want to talk about something a little more rejuvenating. So I brought in Leslie Swingado, and I put her right on the spot, demanded something interesting, something hopeful, and something that is not about COVID. So the, the first innovation that comes to my mind is culture meat. Um, so culture meat is a meat that is produced in a lab, thanks to in vitro cell culture of animal cells. It could taste, I haven't tasted it, but it could taste, you know, like any meat that we, we currently eat. And this innovation was mainly confined to labs in, in the past years, but it's now making its way to the factory as well as to our plates. Um, this year, Singapore was the first country to approve the sale of such meat. And Tel Aviv has opened this year a restaurant that only serves uh, grown lab uh, meat. Okay, okay, so here is where it gets interesting. I am a pretty adventurous eater. But to level with you, the idea of meat grown in a lab didn't have me reaching for a napkin. Maybe it's the word lab that makes it weird, or in vitro. Either way, though, I am a little hesitant. But typical Leslie, the story is a little more complex than a dietary oddity. Cultured meat has a lot going for it, apparently. It could help to drastically reduce the environmental footprint of food production. We need to bear in mind that today agriculture accounts for a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions, for 70% of global water withdrawal, and is responsible of almost all tropical deforestation. And livestock is actually the main culprit of all those uh, environmental negative impacts because it needs a lot of land for cattle grazing and it also relies on a huge amount of crop production for feeding those same uh, animals. And according to to some studies, lab meat could reduce the water and the carbon footprint by more than 95% of meat products. And it wouldn't require any land uh, clearing, and it will also be much more animal friendly because you don't need to slaughter an animal to to eat meat. Okay, okay. So that does sound good. But there's something that we'll start to see in this story and the next. Because there is something inevitable about innovation— The first phases are all about feasibility, desperately trying to make it work, to prove it can actually be a thing. And then, sometimes what seemed like a long shot actually hits fruition, which is great for all the reasons that a project like Cultured Meat started in the first place. But, and there is a but, there are always consequences. Consequences that need balancing. The picture can't be only positive. There are obviously still a lot of challenges with regard to that innovation. I think the, the, the first ones are practical. The, the grown lab meats is still really expensive and there is also a need to, to scale up the production uh, to meet uh, a mass consumption demand. There are also sustainability cons, uh, which I think are super important to think of uh, with uh, grown lab uh, meat. First, it could lead to a lot of uh, job losses for farmers and reduce uh, their revenues. Uh, while we know that uh, such type of, of workforce is already affected by low wages, difficult working conditions and, and poverty, 
And this could also more holistically have a, a negative impact on our farming culture, which has always been very important in the human culture. Um, it could overall rural livelihood and, and landscape and, and even lead to food security issues in the long term. Because if we think about moving away from animal husbandry, we could lose that knowledge and, and transmission of farming practices for the upcoming generation. So all in all, I think it's a very promising innovations and definitely with a lot of positive aspects uh, on the environmental side or on the on animal welfare side. But there are definitely risks that we need to, to carefully address uh, while it develops and, and becomes a, a mainstream food product. Right. So who knows exactly where cultured meat will end up? But at the very least, I take heart in knowing that there are innovators out there working to solve real problems, even if the solutions end up tasting a little stranger than you might have imagined. And those innovations have a happy resonance with the spirit of Kwanzaa, which celebrates the first fruits of a new harvest. And with that hope in our belly, we move on to our next holiday, Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of light. Now, after doing a little digging... I discovered that the Hanukkah story is a little more complex than my childhood memories of spinning dreidels and eating latkes. But one part, which remains relatively straightforward, involves the burning of an apparently empty temple lamp for a miraculous eight days. And as companies and countries start firing out bold net-zero targets, that kind of miracle, one involving perpetual energy but at a bigger scale, would be kind of awesome. So I wanted to hit up Uma Ashfaq because the dude knows a fair tick about energy and what's been happening in the world of renewables. And he can probably tell us if we have enough in our bag of tricks to meet these lofty net-zero targets. Clean electrification alone is unlikely to deliver uh, a net-zero emissions outcome, and we need to look at particular sectors which are extremely energy-intensive, yet substitutes for a high-energy-dense fuel are, are few and far between. Aviation, shipping, and long-distance trucking, the manufacturing of steel, cement, all of these are fairly hard to clean up. There is good news, and I want to talk about it, and specifically, I want to talk about hydrogen. Well, more specifically, I want to talk about green hydrogen. Hydrogen is essentially made by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen, good old electrolysis. And this is a very energy intensive process. And when this process is done using renewable energy, that is where we get green hydrogen. That, of course, is not the whole picture. There are still constraints around how hydrogen would be transported. It is a highly flammable, highly explosive fuel. Liquefying it presents a set of logistical challenges as well. And all of that together, there are still quite a few questions that need to be answered, quite a few technological innovations that need to be made before this could be considered a viable, substitutable fuel. Right. So this is pretty great. Even though hydrogen isn't a viable fuel yet, there is definite promise. Promise that if realized will help flip some of the world's most pollutive industries into something a lot meaner and greener. And there is a well-blazed trail ahead of hydrogen. Renewable energy like wind and solar were once also great ideas with no boots on the ground. But by the end of 2020, renewables look set to hit around 30% of global electricity supply. No more just a marginal side project. But a little bit like cultured meat, when you start hitting scale, you have to deal with externalities. Sometimes the unforeseen consequences of success, and hydrogen fuel may be wishing to have that problem, but wind power is there already. 
over over the past year, at least in 2019, we've seen a rapid deployment of wind particularly, and wind turbines continue to be getting bigger and bigger. And their large size contributes to uh, pretty high efficiency as well as a drop in levelized cost of energy as well. And the question arises that once these massive, uh, at times as long as like 9 to 13 meter wind turbine blades, once they're done with their service, what to do with these? Earlier on, these were sent directly to the landfill and you can imagine the logistical nightmare of culling a wind farm. So researchers have demonstrated the feasibility of a recyclable plastic resin for the use and development of wind turbine blades. So this resin is going to be fully recyclable and at the end of its uh, useful life, the wind turbine could be repurposed into other objects or materials for which the resin would be suitable. Mm, Now that is some good old-fashioned happy news. Resin-made turbine blades that are fully recyclable. Uma, you are a scholar and a gentleman. Now, it wouldn't really be a holiday special if we didn't squeeze in a mention about Santa. Good old Saint Nick himself. Because during a time when the world feels like it's on a panicky spiral to climate disaster, no one should be exempt from doing their part. Especially someone running an archaic manufacturing and shipping operation from the most logistically complicated site in the world. And I just happen to know the perfect person for this critique, Bruno Royce. Not only does Bruno have a decent handle on carbon emissions and climate change, but he is a newly minted father. And parenthood, as I am learning, can sometimes bring with it a calculated commercial assault from the industries of Santa Claus Incorporated. So like me, whether he knows it or not, Bruno has a bit of skin in this game. So I got Bruno to put down the burp cloths and grab some coffee. And I have to hand it to him, the dude is a consummate professional. When I asked him about Santa's carbon footprint, he didn't even blink. Okay, yes, so, so let's break this down and look at what the, the operations of, of Santa are and what type of emissions are uh, involved in that. The, the first type of emissions that we would look at are what we call scope one emissions, which is the emissions associated with you know the manufacturing and the direct operations of, of Santa. So in this case, a lot of those activities are not super carbon intensive, right? So the, the elves making those little arts and crafts uh, probably does not result in so much direct emissions. However, part of the direct operations of Santa will also be you know, taking the, the reindeers and the sleds and, and delivering all these gifts around to all these houses. And uh, while the, the mode of transportation of Santa does not rely on fossil fuels, uh, we know that those reindeers are living and breathing animals. And uh, as such, like cattle, for example, they're probably likely to emit uh, some methane, which is actually a very potent uh, greenhouse gas. And therefore, uh, I would imagine that a lot of the carbon footprint in terms of the direct emissions of Santa uh, would be in the transportation and logistics and specifically uh, in reindeer methane. That's right. Farting, burping reindeer are a real risk for Santa. But look, let's be real. There is something devil may care about a dude that sets up a toy factory in the middle of the Arctic with no automation, no infrastructure, semi-indentured labor, and you can bet that they are just rocking the most adorable but wildly inefficient wood stoves up and down those assembly lines. I don't see a lot of room for renewables up there, not without some serious engineering genius, so in addition to reindeer methane, Santa's heating bull or his scope 2 emissions must be pretty brutal. And this bad news is just going to get worse, 
because for whatever reason, Santa decided that centralized operations are the way to go. And man, that is going to come back to bite him. The majority of the emissions for Santa will be what we call scope three emissions, which is all of the emissions in the supply chain. So that includes uh, the emissions from the purchases of products, all of these parts and materials that are used to be making the gifts, those ones themselves will have some emissions. But on top of that, they need to be shipped to the North Pole, which, as I mentioned earlier, would be uh, would be a bit of a problem. A much bigger part of the emissions potentially will be uh, what we call the, the downstream scope three emissions. So the emissions associated with the use of the products of the gifts, right? For example, last year, my brother gave a, a mini motorcycle to his kid, uh, which runs on fossil fuel. And so, you know, that's a, a nice gift. However, definitely there are some, some emissions associated with that. So that gets counted in, in Santa's, you know, scope three emissions, downstream scope three emissions. And I, I imagine there'll be a lot more of cases like this. Oof, scope three emissions. They always get you somehow. And blatant commercialism aside, I've got nothing personal against Santa. I wanted to help him out a little. Think of ways for him to lower his emission intensity. Decentralized operations, double glazed windows, better streamlining on his sleigh, LED retrofitment for Rudolph's nose, the list gets pretty long. And I also thought he needed to rebrand. Because for those that aren't familiar, Santa has a nasty little habit of dropping a lump of coal in your stocking if you landed on his naughty list. And dishing out fossil fuel mascots to every second or third kid seems like a pretty counterproductive step in the war against climate change, or at least until Bruno rattled the cage of my naive assumptions. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm going to have a, a, a contrarian view on that, because if Santa takes coal, um, you know, we know there's a finite amount of coal. I, I, of course, we know there's too much coal and not all of it will be burned. But to the extent that Santa can buy coal, and take it out of the hands of utilities and other other industries that use coal, that burn coal, and puts it into your stockings, then actually that's coal that's not burned. And coal in itself is not a problem. It's, the problem is when you burn it. So to the extent that you've been bad and you receive coal uh, and you don't burn it, I think that Santa's actually doing you know climate change a favor. Well, hey, well, there you have it. Santa can really flip the script on the naughty and nice list. If you've had a naughty year, man, you could be actively suppressing fossil fuel emissions. And I don't know where Santa is headed, truth be told. There's something a little impractical about the dude. But if we can somehow get Santa on the path to a low-carbon future, there's hope for all of us. And a lot of this episode is about just that. About hope. 2020 and our modern way of living has thrown a bunch of different challenges at us as a society. Today was kind of about showing that there are approaches and technologies out there that can take on these challenges. And we should not lose sight of these hopeful stories. And of course, with every action, every innovation that reaches scale comes consequence. For SK's restaurant industry, it's about how well big franchises are going to be able to front up to hard questions about inequality and discrimination. For Umar, for Leslie, the new ideas and technologies in food and energy are amazing, but if not adopted carefully and deliberately, could have side effects that really throw shade on all the promise that they hold. And for Bruno, well, I give it to the guy. He still doesn't think Santa is going to be a big deal in his life as he negotiates the rollercoaster months of new parenthood. And that's cute. But Santa is probably going to play more of a role in Bruno's life than he realizes. Which is kind of like ESG. A lot of us don't necessarily appreciate how ubiquitous it's becoming. And heads up, if it's not there already, it's probably coming to a portfolio near you in 2021. And like Santa, ESG, if directed properly, 
and used well has the potential to turn a lot of big frowns upside down. And that is it for the show. That is it for 2020. It's been a great year for the ESG Now podcast team with some amazing guests. Today, I want to thank SK and Leslie and Umar and Bruno for sharing their stories with us, for shining some hopeful light over what has been a bit of a dark year. Thank you for tuning into the show, for all your support and comments and feedback. We are really looking forward to doing it all again next year with some new ideas, some new guests, and who knows, maybe some more good news stories. We'll have to wait and see on that one. So, happy Saturnalia, happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. We wish all of our awesome listeners a restful, loving festive season, and we will catch you on the fresh fields of 2021. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.